0: When I was learning environmental health and we started talking about air pollution, part of studying air pollution is that it's extremely hard to then identify who's exposed to what air if it's all around Mm -hmm. us, right? So for me, structural racism is that kind of air pollution. It's at times hard to really capture all of the aspects of structural racism. And I think we shouldn't go into this with the expectation that we're going to capture it all but we can capture certain dimensions of how it
1: operates. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton. And Dr. Deidre Cruz, your host. For
2: anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course, with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism on health, the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequities.
1: Today, we're continuing our discussion about advancing public health through the prism of structural racism with our guest, Dr. Zinzi Bailey. Dr. Bailey is a social epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. Dr. Bailey has extensive experience in quantitative and qualitative methods of assessing social determinants of health and health inequities, namely inequities associated with structural racism. Dr.
2: Bailey's research focuses on operationalizing structural racism in relationship to health inequities and neighborhood variation in cancer risk, as well as lung cancer disparities across the cancer continuum. Much of the research we are discussing today centers on the health impacts of and policy solutions for structural and institutional racism, along with the use of data in equitable policy and management.
1: So welcome, Dr. Bailey. We are very excited to be talking with you today. Thank you so much. We've had several guests this season who have referenced the way you and your colleagues in your 2017 Lancet paper described structural racism. But now here you are with us. Can you tell us what does the term structural racism mean to you? So I am so excited that that work
0: from 2017 is still relevant and is still going around. But I do refer to structural racism as the totality of ways that our societies are fostering racial discrimination. With that in mind, it's a larger system that includes a number of different inequitable sectors or systems, uh, institutions within it. So that's reflected in housing, and credit histories, in a range of different sectors, right? Employment, mm-hmm. incarceration, criminal legal systems, right? So all of these things are connected. And these different sectors are reinforcing each other in a larger system of racial discrimination. So essentially it's all undergirding discriminatory beliefs values, distribution of resources, you know, reinforcing things that other maybe sociologists would call cultural racism, right? So I think sometimes we get stuck in some of the terminology and the mm-hmm. the language around this. But I think as Eduardo Bonilla-Silva points out, it's a racialized social system. And that is what we're referring to. So there's policies that are undergirding all of these elements, but then there are structures and sectors that are also a part of that architecture. So for me, uh, structural racism is a large system that's at work, both very visible and invisible. So it applies to everything in everyday life.
2: Yeah. Oh. Well, great to hear that from you directly. As we've said, we've, we've had so many people reference you. So wonderful to have you. So um, many of our guests have shared with us that, that their own experiences with racism have really shaped the, the work that they do. And just wondering if you could share with us, you know, how your own experiences uh, with racism have informed your, your interest in structural racism and, in particular, your, your interest in how it applies to public health.
0: I think that um, this is a, a longer narrative, I think, um, but I'll try to be brief. My name is Zinzi, right? And I think when my parents decided to name me Zinzi, it set the course for a lot of my life. Mm. Um, So Mm. Zinzi is the name of Nelson Mandela's daughter, who was reciting a lot of his speeches that he was writing in prison at the time of my birth. And he was Mm. really fighting against apartheid. So just in the explanation of my name in daily life (laughs) from kindergarten or whenever I started socializing with other kids or with teachers I had to start understanding what my name really meant and what then what is apartheid what why was Nelson Mandela who was a good person why was he in prison right mm-hmm. so I had to start grappling with some of those things my my thoughts have changed over time but I think in that sense I've always thought of racism, not just as an interpersonal experience, but as larger systems where there are not only governments, corporations, a range of different people and entities that are involved in enforcing racism. Mm -hmm. Um, As I've gone along, I grew up in Miami, Florida, after moving from Jamaica. I knew very well from a child that race was different where I came from to Mm. where I landed, and then Mm -hmm. when I went to college, I studied abroad in Spain, then I did a lot of work in Brazil. All of those times and those experiences, my experience of race has changed. So for me, it became very clear that race is a social construct, right? Mm -hmm. And then racism is part of that social construct.
1: What a beautiful answer to such a living history of both the path that parents can put us on with a thoughtful name and how different we are in different contexts when society can try to make it seem like there's only one way of looking at things. And and thank you for that. So we'd love to turn to the issues with measuring structural racism. So you you talked about the definition and about how it's all interrelated and in research, it's so much easier if something's linear to measure and, and model. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think some of the challenges are in, in constructing good measurements of structural racism, and particularly its impact on health, and what you're working on right now in terms of trying to solve some of those challenges. I think there are so many directions to go in, with that question. I will
0: start with what immediately comes to mind, which is when I was learning environmental health, and we started talking about air pollution, part of studying air pollution is that it's extremely hard to then identify who's exposed to what air Mm -hmm. if it's all around us, right? So for me, structural racism is that kind of air pollution. Mm -hmm. It's at times hard to really capture all of the aspects of structural racism, and I think we shouldn't go into this with the expectation that we're going to capture it all. Mm -hmm. But we can capture certain dimensions of how it operates. So I would say that's where I think some of the focus on kind of specific policies has been really useful. But as people focus in on Jim Crow or particular historical points, sometimes we lose sight of the multidimensionality, right? Mm -hmm. So... It becomes very hard to pin down and so I don't think that should be a a challenge that causes us to abandon this project but really to think about well you know what key part am I looking at what mechanism am I trying to elucidate and what would I need to control for understanding these other components that are a part of structural racism
1: right So, you know, you mentioned measurement and time, and that's really intriguing to me because one of the things we're trying to really consider is structural racism across the life course. So if someone is born in 1930, and they're, they're older now, and they've lived through Jim Crow and Brown and the 60s, and, and how to put together measurement of those, you know, exposures, we would say, in research to structural racism, so that it's not just the different domains, it's also the different decades and developmental periods of the person's life. And I wondered if you could reflect on that. So that
0: is absolutely the direction that I've been trying to go in. So I often am talking about where someone is in their particular developmental period. Uh, So there might be some sensitive periods whereby the actions of a government, so for example, policy may be more relevant to them. So for example, the 80s and 90s, into mass incarceration, if you were older during that period of time that mm-hmm. impact of that uh, that era may be different than if you were in a younger period where you were more likely to be incarcerated or you know affected by arrests etc yeah. right so there's an interaction between those two exactly and then there's also then the natural progression of a disease, right? Mm-hmm. Or how a disease is going to be formulated, or, or, or you know, not expressed, etiology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So no. all of that is happening along that period of time. So you might be exposed to something in a particular time, and you might be more sensitive to that particular exposure to a policy or systems action, right? But maybe that is not the right time for the beginning or, or the impact on etiology of disease. So... Mm-hmm. That's why we need to be specific about specific diseases, specific conditions, and how those things are developing. So right. there's going to be time on three different levels of the life course, the developmental period, the history, and then the secular time for etiology right. of disease.
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah. Wow.
2: So, so Zindi, you you were touching on this a bit a moment ago, but I was wondering if, as you think about the opportunity for more, comprehensive measures, let's say, of, of structural racism. How, if at all, do you think that that would actually improve our ability to translate those findings into into policies and practices that might be able to have real world impact? Like where do you, where do you see that connection between measurement and impact?
0: I think it is with careful use of these measures, right? So if something is like racism or measures of racism are increasing in the criminal legal system, or mm-hmm. if they're going down, but then you're seeing a coordinating increase in education or something like that, I think it's important to take note of what is happening. Mm-hmm. Being able to identify different patterns and being able to direct that towards interventions and how you're approaching policy. I'll be more mm-hmm. specific. So, when working at the New York City Health Department, part of our aim and and mission was to move towards being an anti-racist multicultural organization. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, you know, we were trying to take stock of all the work that we were doing and thinking about people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. So as we're going about this, you know, we know arrests, going through the experience of incarceration, potentially multiple times, experiences in court, all of these things are impactful. And we're trying to prevent folks from having to be incarcerated, especially if it's because of a, a cash bail system, right? Right. So we started going through that. But from a structural racism lens, as we're thinking about that, being free or outside of an incarcerated space, it's not just not being in that physical location. Structural racism is still operating if we then still have racial inequities in people who are wearing ankle monitors or right. whether right. people are mandated to medical treatment, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I it doesn't really take away the structural racism of it. It uh-huh. it just changes its form. So, mm-hmm. in a, trying to approach this situation, you know, we were thinking of like, oh, what are ways that we do not Reproduce the structural racism of criminal legal systems in our medical mm. practice or in our public health practice. So mm. I think it's there yeah. is a research component, but I think there is a very practical component in terms of how you structure interventions that are going to operate more closely to what we hope to achieve.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Can I, can I ask yeah. a follow up Go to for that? It, Dr. Cruz? <laughs> so you were touching on some unintended consequences, right? I began to think a bit about some potential intended, you know, backlash. You've certainly commented on a lot of this in in your work, right? But but historically, we've seen that when there's progress made that might serve to address structural racism, there tends to be then an equal or or even bigger policy change that is basically backlash. So I was wondering what. What, in your view, is a way to guard against that? How can we prepare for that to mitigate its impact? I mean, what what are your thoughts on the backlash that always seems to happen (laughs) with, with this sort of progress?
0: That's an excellent question. And I wish if we knew the answer to this, we would be much further along, right? But I think there's different approaches to backlash. And I think, number one, I think we should be outraged, but not necessarily activated in the same way where it, it it's actually a a technique for us to lose uh energy and yeah. and commitment right if you focus on those headlines you you get demoralized but mm-hmm. if you're staying true to what the mission is I think that is the key element backlash is meant to distract right,
1: right. it's meant
0: to divert energies it's meant to divide up attention. So the more that we can stay unified and mission-driven, the better I think we can operate within the context of backlash, knowing it's going to happen, right? But I think within our democratic systems, this is the importance of having equal right to voting and making sure that people are able to exercise that right and being able to reflect their desires and their, 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 the directions that they wanna go in without the gerrymandering, without the you know other elements where we have some oversight as a collective, as a, a civic society. Backlash happens, right? Backlash has happened historically. And I think it's mitigating and recognizing where there's going to be actually lasting change. And it's a real thing that we need to operate within. So thinking about legal action, thinking about what lawsuits need to happen, what programming needs to occur in order to protect people's lives in the shorter term. So there's going to be a multifaceted approach. But I think making sure that we're not distracting ourselves from what needs to happen.
2: Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for entertaining my extra yeah. question. <laughs> and speaking
1: speaking of um, current events and milestones and what people are paying attention to, you've written about the COVID pandemic. And, of course, during the main part of the COVID pandemic also was when George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor and amidst uh, centuries of police-involved killings. But um, it feels a little bit like we're at a different moment now in terms of people paying attention. I just wondered if you if this period of time has impacted your views on whether we can make changes for structural races, like w- whether we're in a particular policy window, potentially?
0: Um, I think we are at a particular policy window, but, you know, referring back to that backlash, I think that policy window is closing in a lot of places. And it's going to be a very careful direction moving forward. I think some organizations or institutions have tried to make strides, but with the first like difficult conversation or difficult right. initiative have backed down. So mm-hmm. I think there is always a, a need for continuity and to be mm-hmm. continually pushing, even when we're not in immediate crisis.
1: Yeah maybe um, especially when we're not when we're, yeah, especially yeah. when
0: we're not in an med- immediate crisis what the covid pandemic and a lot of the racial reckoning of this period has allowed us to see is that there is change that is possible a lot of this is due to political will people power so things that we thought were completely intractable are actually decisions right, right. and i think more people are open to that as a direction so If a lot of the injustices that we see are up to decisions, that means we need to be more influential on the decision-making, being more critical about where resources are going, thinking about how are we really maintaining safety and justice within different spaces, right? So there are decisions that are being made on a daily basis that create this larger structure that we have going on. So from an aspect of, like, anti-racism, right, it's about making equitable decisions on a daily basis. It's a practice. And it's also creating the environment for those decisions to be commonplace, like what right. do you default to, right? right? So it's gonna take a while for us to get there, um, but I think people have seen that there is a possibility
2: of change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So so now we're, we're gonna take a little trip to the Zinzi Bailey Vision Board and, um, and ask you, what, what would you say is, is your vision as you as you look forward over the next decade, right? What would be, what, what's your vision for, for health equity and justice? This is a hard question, but
0: let's go with my most optimistic kind of vision board, which is we're moving towards a direction where we are recognizing and really investing in ways that we can actually change or shift the way that we're thinking about health equity into real actionable change right in our systems not just a a program focused on diabetes or cancer but thinking about larger change that influences these outcomes so i think in the next 10 years i see more investments in actually disrupting some of the status quo thinking about disrupting our criminal legal systems and how they operate Disrupting housing markets and thinking about how we ensure tenant protections as well as affordable housing. I see us moving towards a direction where we see housing as a human right and Mm -hmm. as a key component of health. I see us moving in ways that we are actually valuing people over profits and moving that forward into our actions, our investments, our commitments.
1: Well, that's a beautiful vision. <laughs> Let's go there. <laughs> Let's go there. I would love to go there. Yeah. Well, so the, our last question is, um, what advice do you give to the next generation of researchers, or what's the best piece of advice that you've gotten from somebody you admire? So
0: I would say that you have to stick with your values and principles. Mm-hmm. Your pathway is going to change over time. You might end up doing things that you didn't think you would be able to achieve or directions you might not have anticipated going in. But the important thing is to be driven by some kind of North Star or maybe it's a South Star. I don't know. Right? <laughs> um, but to be driven by a mission, a purpose, a direction mm-hmm. um, and making sure that what you're doing is meeting that purpose. There are a lot of ways in which our attentions are scattered, but the more that we can stay the course, the better off we will be, and the more satisfied we will be with the work that we do. I've talked to some other folks, including uh, Ketira Felix, about the idea that, you know, fairness uh, is pretty intuitive if you talk to and ask children about, like, what is fair, like... She got two cookies. I got one. Like what happened? Right. So it's something that's intuitive. But the more we're socialized into certain institution systems, we're like, oh, this is the way it is. And we try to operate within the way it is. But I think if we are drawn to our values and our principles, our purpose, the better off we are and the more satisfied we will be with the work that we do.
1: Thank you, Dr. Bailey, for sharing your work and insights with us. For our listeners, check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash agingfastandslow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. Have comments, questions, or guest suggestions? Reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu.
2: And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. You may also enjoy the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, On the Pulse, which explores invaluable stories of how nursing works in today's world. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Costaca for technical expertise, Brian Fitzick for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Crest for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.